Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and we have an absolute treat for you. Because a banger. It is a banger. It's a total banger. Bangers only. Bangers only. Uh, we have John Byrne Murdoch of the FT who has written a fantastically interesting piece about where does economic growth come from? So this is the holy grail of all economics, which is how does a country go from being poor to being rich? What is the alchemy? What is the essential chemistry? How is it done? In Ireland, we have done it, and we're going to come back to this after our discussion. But John, it is something that's, as you know, has intrigued me. How does it actually work? I yeah, yeah, yeah. The nuts and bolts. Of it, but, but it is one of those things, if if there was a formula, and if the, if you could bottle it up, well then, hey-ho, we'd be all... I'd be out of a job. I'd be out of a job. And you don't want that. Are you in a job at the moment? Make you up your job. Make you up your job. You know, as I was telling you about that, that book, David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs idea. Yeah. It's a good book. Good book. But no. And there are many, many theories, but most economic theories are what I would call mechanistic. Yeah. Right? They take a, a relative price here, a change there. They put them together and say, hey ho, there is a slightly almost mechanistic way that if you arrive at this thing, then the economy will just grow by itself, mm. right? I'm not sure that's the way it works. In fact, you know that I don't... I, yeah. Know, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah. the mood, I think the culture, I think the society, I think the sociology, I think what is embraced, what is not embraced, what is given prominence, what is not given prominence, I think these things are hugely important but in society. But it's why economics is not a science, and it's as much as we say it all the time that, you know, it's as much about kind of humanity and, and society and all of that. All that good stuff. Yeah, no, it is. It's a sort of a, a, a very soft science that was made hard by economists who didn't make it as mathematicians, right? <laughs> so economics is full of failed mathematicians who weren't that good at sums, but were better than most people. Right? Yeah. And in order to dignify the pursuit of economics, what they decided was to come up with these models, John, 
And these models gave it a hardness. It's kind of like, we're, we're almost doing physics here, right? Yeah, yeah. Pie charts and the like. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. But then you go back and you look at actually what makes the economy tick. Now, John has done an amazing, amazing piece of work. So why don't we talk to John, right? But his basic idea is that what is in the wind, so to speak? Remember Bob Dylan, John? You like Bob Dylan. I do. So Bob do. Dylan said, you know, what is blown in the wind? The answer, my friend, is blown in the wind. And what he was saying was that the answer to the society's problems is actually in the air somewhere. Yeah. You can grasp it. You can see it from student protests, or the way people believe or what they believe and how they're doing, right? So he wasn't saying, Dylan wasn't saying, go to one source. He says, like, take the culture, the broad culture, what's blowing in the wind, and there is where the answer is. Yeah. And in a way, I think the same thing is going for economics, that the answer is in deep culture. So let's talk to John and let's come back and have a chat afterwards about how it means for Ireland. So let's go over to the UK, talk to John Byrne Murdoch. Let's go. I am reading a most fascinating, fascinating article by John Byrne Murdoch. You will know John, he has been on the pod a number of times, so much so that he was coaxed, I wouldn't say against his will, but maybe against better advice, down to Kilconomics uh, last year. And I, I think one of the Gigs that sold out quickest was a gig with John, which was called Telling Stories with Data. And this is, in many ways, the holy grail of the economics journalist, the economics communicator, the economics teacher, is to take data, but demystify it, humanize it, and actually tell the story of data. And I've always thought data is evidence. If you look back in the past, if you're looking for evidence, if you actually decide you're an economic sort of private investigator. It's data that is your evidence and it gives you all the plots and the way to frame your story. And John is a master at it and he's on the line. John, great to see you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I must say in, in Kilkenny, I was I never thought I'd see the day when a, a theatre was packed out with people to hear to a couple of nerds talking about numbers and charts. So yeah, there listen, you go. <laughs> listen we, uh, we, we, in actual fact, speaking of numbers and charts and graphs, I was reading something bizarre about a man called John Playfair. And John Playfair was a Scottish engineer who not only, not only orchestrated the biggest forgery of French banknotes in the 1790s, but was the first man to introduce high charts and lines and graphs into economics. We actually, at the FT, our in-house charting tool that we first made about seven, eight years ago was initially called Playfair. No way. Excellent, excellent. Well, good stuff. Well, here, in that's a genuflection to Mr. Playfair. In fact, he was the least uh, fair play man in the whole world because he destroyed the French currency. So he's a bit of a bollocks, was our Mr. John Playfair. But he was the man who introduced graphics to economics. John, you have written an amazing piece. Take me through it. I, I would want you to explain to the listener what it is. It's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of, of economic unearthing. Yes, well, th thanks very much. And yeah, so this is a it's, it's a topic I've been interested in in a while. It's just this idea of the interplay between culture, language, and economics. And what sparked this idea for me was a paper um, that came from four economists led by a man called Ali Al-Melham. This paper was called Enlightenment Ideals and Belief in Progress in the Run-Up to the Industrial Revolution, a Textual Analysis. You know, just Trips off the top. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm buying that. I'm going out. I'm going out right now. I'm on Amazon as we speak. <laughs> but yeah, so they did this paper last month. So it's very recent. And what they wanted to look at was 
how did the the way people talk about society evolve in the years leading up to and during the takeoff of the Industrial Revolution? So this is obviously a really interesting question that people have played with for ages, right? Anyone who's been interested in the economy and in, in why the Industrial Revolution happened when and where it did has wanted to know what are all the factors that could have been playing a role here. So one of the sort of most compelling arguments that has been made is by a US economic historian called Robert C. Allen. And he looked at this in a, in a very sort of data-driven way. And his argument is that it can all be explained by fairly straightforward economics. So his theory basically goes that Britain in the 16th and early 17th centuries was really making a huge success of global commerce. And this led to a couple of things. One is a significant increase in labor costs and wages. And the other is that in an indirect way, because this also, this in turn led to population increase, the increase in population, particularly in cities like London, meant that there was no longer enough wood to heat homes. And so people had to start exploring things like coal instead. So you have these two factors. You had the increase in wages, labor costs, and the decrease in cost of fuel, because we suddenly discovered this very energy intense fuel in coal. And that combination meant that in Britain at that time, you had high labor costs, you had low energy costs. And so it incentivized the substitution of energy and capital for labor that allowed rapid mechanization of manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's your sort of the main, like you could call it the hard theory of the industrial So that's revolution. the sort of standard theory based on exactly. sort of relative prices, economics, Britain having had an advantage in commerce, and away we go. And that explains. That's exactly. one, that's one so, idea. Yes. So that's, what, that's one pretty solid theory. Then other people talk about things like the role of institutions in the UK. So you had things going on at this time, like you'd had the civil war, you had slightly less power for the crown. This led to the creation of space for private financing, and, and maybe that played a big part. Other people argue that it was almost entirely endogenous and, and the simple fact that you had more and more people over time gathering together, intermingling, bouncing ideas around. It was kind of inevitable that in parts of the world where population was growing faster, which was certainly true of London at the time, you would just get more ideas emerging. So those are many theories that you get. But then there's another school of thought. And I think one of the most prominent people advancing this is a Israeli-American economic historian called Joel Mokir. And he's argued across a body of work that cultural change was, was a key part of sort of laying the groundwork, creating fertile ground for the Industrial Revolution. So the theory there is that you had prominent British thinkers at the time, so people like Francis Bacon and then Isaac Newton, who really came up with what was a completely novel framework for thinking about things at the time, which was this progress-oriented view of the world and this view that we humans could take control of our destiny to some degree and, and to carry out experiments and tests and discover ways of making our lives better. And I think when some people dismiss this sort of cultural idea because they say, you know, it's just soft and woolly and hand wavy. But I think we fail to appreciate quite how revolutionary that thinking was at the time. You know, this was a world where religion was still the absolute cornerstone of everything. And it was... Yep. We were here because of God and, and God determined the quality of life we had. And, you know, if you were a good, a good Christian, a good Catholic, et cetera, things would go well for you. But this idea that we as a species as a, and as a community could improve our own lot was completely new. So that's the idea that, that Mokir brings along. And, you know, he's not the only one, but, but 
that's where this comes from. That's why these researchers, these economists did this paper. They wanted to test out whether that was true. Was there a shift in culture and language that happened around the 16th, early 17th centuries, which could explain why those ideas and then processes took off? Well, I mean, I find it fascinating because this podcast always talks about economics and human nature and humanity being part of the same equation. And it's not about behavioral economics. It's not about pop psychology. It's about the idea of sociology matters. So a lot of economics, you know, you think Schumpeter and all those guys, it's like there is a certain type of person, an entrepreneur, and and, and, and they are in, in some way, they are psychologically disposed to take risks. The other idea is that societies can be sociologically disposed to encourage economics, risk-taking, venture, all that stuff. So let's talk about the evidence, because I, I find this absolutely fascinating. Yes. So these, these team of researchers, what they did was they used this enormous library, enormous corpus of text, which is the result of digitizing books over centuries. So again, this is, we think of anything digital as, as being modern. But this is books that have been turned into searchable text and essentially turned into sort of huge bundles of words going back right the way to the year 1500, which wow. is just wow. astonishing what you think about. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So you've like, you're like 40 years after the printing press. That's amazing. Exactly. And, and this is all now just exists in, in text files and databases. So they analyzed this huge corpus of text, which contained a content of 173,031 books. Amazing. Indeed. So just this enormous amount of data. And these were books printed in England between the year 1500 and 1900. So, you know, again, covers an enormous range of stuff. And, and what they did was they tracked the frequency of different words, different terms over time. And their particular focus in, in the context of this Industrial Revolution idea was words related to progress. So, again, this is the stuff that the likes of Bacon and Newton were pushing, this idea that we can make the world better, we can make our lives better. And what they found was, and, and yeah, they, they were pretty careful about this. They made sure, for example, that they weren't just capturing words that describe general positivity and optimism. And they were also made sure to, to avoid words which could sort of come in and out of use for sort of synthetic reasons, for artificial reasons. And so they, they ended up with this, this bundle of words related to progress. And what they found was a, a very marked increase in the use of terms related to progress and innovation in these books published in England, starting in the early 17th century. So, so just before really the Industrial Revolution was, was coming, coming into being. And I think that it's really key there to emphasize that point about before, because obviously some people might look at this and say, well, yeah, you know, if society suddenly starts progressing, you're going to start talking about progress. But because they got the timing right here, you can quite clearly see that it was the cultural shift that preceded the technological shift. So you get this, this increase in people talking about progress and then progress starts appearing. And, and, and again, it sounds almost sort of too convenient and nice, but when you consider the revolutionary nature of these ideas, I think it's, it's certainly worth taking this argument seriously. And so they conclude that this supports the idea that a cultural evolution in the attitudes towards the potential of science, the potential of you know, science, engineering, human activity, accounts in some part at least for the British Industrial Revolution and its economic takeoff. So that's their paper, which again, I think is absolutely fascinating. And, and this is, they went into incredible detail. There's reams and reams of stuff in there, different analyses they did. They also looked at what type of books this language was occurring in. So they split things broadly into books about religion, 
books about science and books about political economy. And they find that this uptick in language around progress particularly comes in books at the nexus of science and political economy. So it's not just all in these sort of dense technical science books yep. where you wouldn't necessarily expect that language to percolate through. But can you say like, well, it's almost like 17th or 18th century popular science? popular scientific, exactly. you know, yeah, okay, brilliant. Exactly. So it's the kind of books that people who run businesses who determine where capital goes. If there were airports in the 18th century, the sort of books would be flogged there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Maybe they had them in the ports. Yeah, exactly. Bewigged CEOs would have them un under their arm as they go into the tavern, just to tell exactly. you, I'm, I'm this sort of guy. I'm the sort of guy yeah. who reads these sort of books. But go on, you know, so it's in, popular in science. Indeed, yeah. So, so they've, they've, they've captured this quantifiable uptick in, in discussions about progress and science and innovation in books that a slightly broader audience of people might have read. And so I read this paper, I thought, absolutely brilliant, amazing work. And then I thought, well, there's a couple of things I wonder about this. One is, could we extend that to the modern day and see how that trend has continued past 1900? And the other is, what about if we look at different places, different cultures at that time? So an example that the authors actually allude to themselves in the, at the very end of their, their discussion section of the paper is, what would this look like for Spain? Okay. Because the reason Spain is interesting is up until the Industrial Revolution, Spain and Britain were very similar economically. So two nations with dominant navies, merchant navies, a huge amount of commerce by sea, and therefore relatively speaking at the time, were quite prosperous. But then when the Industrial Revolution took off in Britain, it decidedly did not take off in Spain. Yeah. You know, you had the Reformation, which meant Northern Europe, including Britain, became more Protestant, whereas Spain was at the forefront of the Counter-Reformation, which remained very, very Catholic. So the emphasis on religion and on particular types of religion, you get this big divergence. And so what I thought as well, can I find data which would allow me to, to ask this question? What do we see in terms of A, culture, and B, economic takeoff in Spain versus in Britain? And to do this, I used a tool which I've known about for a while, but never really dug into, which is called Google Ngram. Ngram. Google Ngram, so it's N-G-R-A-M. And the concept there is an Ngram is it's a word count. But what Google have done is that anytime you search for anything online, and Google gives you a result where it says that phrase that you search for appears in this book. That's because Google has also digitized hundreds of thousands, millions of books. And controversially, they even, they've even done this for books that are still within copyright in the last few years. And there was a whole case around this. And, and one of the reasons Google and Grab is still available is that it doesn't surface the full contents of any book. It's just okay. treating every book as this massive bundle of words. So what they've got is, again, spanning centuries, digitization of books, of scientific articles, all this stuff. And crucially, they do this for a few languages. They've got it for English, which they split into British and American English. They've got it for Spanish, French, German. They even got it for simplified Chinese. And so what I thought is, well, I've got this data set here, which in theory allows me to do something very similar to what the authors of this paper have done. I can look back over hundreds of years, to go all the way back to the year 1600 or slightly before, and see how the usage, the frequency of words related to progress, same words that the authors of that paper used, how that changed. And I can do that for English and I can do it for Spanish. And sure enough, you see this almost 200 year lag between when that language took off in Britain and when it took off in Spain. Wow, that's, that is fascinating. 
So the Spaniards were not thinking about progress until, let's say, the 19th century, the late 19th century, whereas exactly the British that. were so, thinking about it in the late 17th century. Exactly. So, so in Britain, you see pretty much from the start of the 17th century, this increase in, in language around progress. So that's you know, sort of Francis Bacon in his, in his prime kind of years, and then, and then Isaac Newton. So from 16 to 1700, there's a steady upsurge in talk, discussions about progress in science. In Spain, you just don't see that at all until about halfway through the 19th century. And the particularly interesting thing is if you then plot GDP per capita in Britain and Spain on that same timescale, you see something very, very similar. So this is using the, um, the Madison database of, yeah. of GDP, which goes back centuries, which you and a lot of your listeners will be aware of. And it's remarkable how similar those lines are. You, you, in, in the same way that we saw with language around progress, you see a roughly 200-year lag in GDP takeoff in Britain and in Spain. And again, crucially, it's not just that these happen around the same time, it's that the uptick in in discussion of progress happens just before the uptick in GDP per capita in both instances. Now, as any time you do this kind of analysis, there will be a chorus of voices saying correlation, causation, you name it. And, and I think, well, this is, this is the thing. I think, first of all, those people are not wrong. It's, it's, it's incredibly hard in science, and even in the hard sciences, let alone something a little bit fuzzier like this, to prove that one thing is causing the other. So I think we do need to say that this is an association. These things happen at the same time. We don't know if they're causing them. But when you combine that with the work of people like Joel Mokir, there's a clear conceptual framework and theory for how and why this would have, one could have caused the other. So so that was the really interesting thing in terms of Britain and Spain, which for me just gives a bit more weight to this idea that culture can indeed be a sort of leading indicator and, and can, can create the environment for economic growth. So that was the first thing that I thought was really interesting and, and, and the bit of extension and, and adaptation that I did. But then the other thing I wanted to do, as I mentioned earlier, was what does this look like today? Yeah, like what sort of books are we publishing today? Exactly, exactly. And so... In the Google data, you can take things right the way forward to 2019, which of course means we can see what's happened since the Industrial Revolution and in the last century. And that then was really striking. So for this stage, I'm using all books that have been published in the English language. So this includes British, American, and even books that are published in other parts of the world, but in English. So again, enormous, enormous data set. And what you see is you had this steady increase in language around progress going from 1600 to 1700, then increasing even more as we go to 1800 and 1900. But then you have a, a sort of plateau from around the, the sort of mid-19th century through to the late 20th centuries. But it's funny, actually, I'm, I think of this as being up until we landed on the moon. So Fascinating. Basically, the, the late 1960s, where it was sort of peak discussion about progress and improvement and advances and future. And then from the late 1960s to 2019, you've got this pretty pronounced decline in discussion around that language. So, you know, it's, it's still fairly high. It's still, we're still talking about progress about as much as we were in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, but it's really decreased quite considerably over the last 60 or so years. And so that in and of itself, I think is really interesting, right? That's what's happened there. Like, is this, yeah. is this a real cultural shift? And, 
And if so, what does that mean for the extent to which we are pursuing progress and technology as a society? But then the other thing is, if you look at the the opposite worldview, as it were, so so this is where I started looking at words like threat and worry and caution, and um, and you see again pr- a pretty flat level right the way through from the 16th century to the early 20th century, but then you get this steady increase and, and quite a steep increase at the at the very end of the 20th century and into the 21st. So. At the same time as people are talking less about progress and improvements and betterment in the future, people are talking more about threats and worries and caution. And that, again, for me, is really interesting. And that, I suspect, will resonate with a lot of people who, who've been thinking about this, particularly in the last couple of decades, that we hear about more anxiety, we hear about yeah, um, people absolutely. worrying more about all sorts of things. And so for me, this is just a, a fascinating chart to look at when we're thinking about the state of the world at the moment. You've got people saying things like they don't want to have kids because of the world they would be bringing those kids into. Yeah, We've also seen this sort of structural slowdown in economic growth in the developed world. And, and for me, it's just a great encapsulation of these things that we sort of feel, but have never been able to really put in numbers. And this chart, this data, I think really does that. And you know what, I, I find all this really fascinating because what it does is it, it kind of gives a plausible explanation for what we are now angst-ridden about, which is the decline of the West, the decline of what happened to all this innovation. I was given a book by a very, very well-known tech entrepreneur called Where Is My Flying Car, which was written about what happened to all those innovations in the 1960s. So 1950s, 1960s. And as you said, interestingly, you know, one would have thought that landing on the moon would have being the propulsion mechanism for even more discoveries. But in what you're saying and what, what this book is saying is that, in fact, the late 50s, mid to late 60s was the high point of innovation. And as a result of that, we've gone backwards. So the, the idea of having flying cars was regarded as, yeah, that's going to happen. And for a variety of cultural, but not economic reasons and not engineering reasons and not technical reasons, we haven't got there. And, and what I find brilliant about this, John, is it explains this nexus between culture, innovation, to a degree risk-taking, although I think that expression has been besmirched and over-politicized, and the broader economy. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. And and it's funny you mentioned the um, the besmirching of risk there, actually, because one of one of the words I actually left out of this analysis was risk, because you see this. Is that? For, I mean, this is going off at a tangent, but you, you get a tangents are all good in this podcast. <laughs> this podcast is a very tangential. It's a very tangential engagement with the world. You better Excellent. believe it. Basically, you get this surge in conversations about risk for a sort of synthetic reason, which is that economics and finance now use risk just in a in a much more general way, which didn't yeah. used to be the case. So I I kept that out because otherwise it was sort of distorting the extent to which we're all worried about things now. Look at but, the, the pair of us thinking the same way straight away. No, but it is true because, you know, risk has been incredibly politicized as well, you know, and so I'm that type of risky person, that that person doesn't take risk and therefore they're not entrepreneurial and they're not go-getting. But the idea that the link between progress and science and innovation, and kind of futurology in a way. Yeah. And again, people will, you know, understand, we go back to the uh, the airport edition idea, so many books about anxiety, so many books about the threats in the outside world, so many books about where we've gone wrong, all that sort of stuff. And it seeps into the culture and the culture seeps into it. It's kind of a process of dual osmosis almost. 
Absolutely. And, and this, it's been really interesting. One of the things I love, when I, whenever I do a piece like this, especially when I put it out on what we used to call Twitter, um, <laughs> is you get all these replies and that's like, what does this make people think? And a common reply was people say, well, you know, it's no surprise that we talk more about caution and worry and risk now because the world's just much more scary. So and I looked at that and I thought, the really interesting word there for me is scary because the extent to which you're scared of something is as much, if not more, about the way you talk and think about that thing as the thing itself. Precisely. Like if you look at the last 70 years, 80 years, the period through which we've been talking more about worry and, and, and fear and, and caution, that's the period where we had two world wars. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a Great Depression, all of these things. And during any given one of those periods, we talk less about caution and worry and fear than we do today. And so for me, what's changed is how we talk about these things. It's not the things themselves. And don't get me wrong, you know, whether it's the environment, whether it's AI doom, there are genuine things to be worried about today. But I think for me, what's happened is there's almost this paradox where as you eliminate bad things, which affect you yourself, that gives you the time and space to think about more bad things that don't necessarily affect you. And, and for me, that distinction is important because if you're worried about something that affects you, that can actually provoke a positive response from you. Like, how am I going to respond to this? This is something that I have some degree of control over. What's my solution? Whereas if you're thinking about dying coral reefs or Out there AI somewhere. Do, yeah, exactly. That, then you've got all of the worries, you've got the anxiety, but you can't solve it yourself. And so I think, and you know, this is just spitballing a theory, but I wonder if what we've done is by eliminating bad things in our own lives, like, you know, poverty has plummeted, life expectancy is getting better, health is getting better. We've got rid of the, of those sort of immediate um, risks and concerns for ourselves. And, and we're now just worried more about bigger picture things. We're worried about things happening to other people, happening to other species. And those things are things that are just more inherently negative to think about. John, it is endlessly fascinating. It is endlessly fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up the discussion with, with John afterwards, John Davis, rather than John Burmark, with, with this. I don't know if you've read Deirdre McCluskey's Bourgeois Dignity, which is in that sort of area, trying to explain how the world changed. But I mean, any theory to me that explains how the economy takes off, how societies get wealthier, that has a cultural background noise to it seems much more plausible than just inputs and outputs and, and, and mechanics. You know, again, as I come back, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's more sociology than mechanics. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and again, I think it's, it's as, as always, the cop, the cop out is that it's all of the above, right? I think <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the theory we had at the start about what Rob Allen's work on, on cost of labour and energy, I think is, it's very compelling, but it's the... What sparked that in the first place? You know, there were there were differences in in costs and inputs, and we discovered different resources over centuries and centuries, and they didn't lead to that same takeoff. And as we say, you know, Spain became aware of this star, and but but didn't but didn't have the same explosion. So yeah, I, for me, it's there's definitely all of the things we discussed play a part in this. But I think the people who dismiss language and culture and just say, oh, that's all very hand wavy. I think, oh, they're wrong. 
So there you go. John, we will leave it there. That is wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, you're obviously back in the Kilconomics uh, first 11, uh, as you know. And, but it's, it's great stuff and I can't recommend listeners uh, enough to go and have a, have a look at that article by John Byrne Murdoch. It's really, it makes you think and that's hopefully what great articles should do. So John, listen, brilliant stuff. See you soon. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Man, that is really it's fascinating. Good, it? It's fascinating it's stuff. stuff. And it's a completely different take, but it just brings to mind that phrase of words matter. Words absolutely matter and culture matters and what society believes in matters. That's yeah. the key thing. What does a society believe in? Now, there's a great book on this, just an addendum to John's work by Deirdre McCluskey, who is another Kilconomics recidivist. Right. And she's written three books, one of which is called, well, three, she's written many books, but one is with this idea, it's called Bourgeois Dignity, Why Economics Can't Explain the Modern World. And this is all about what society believes in matters enormously. Mm. And what her basic idea is, she goes back to the Dutch, so John goes back to the British Industrial Revolution, she goes back to the Dutch Republic before the British Industrial okay. Revolution. And she says, why did these things happen in Holland? Why did Holland get rich so quickly? And she makes the point that they, they began to believe in the future. Mm. So they began to believe in science and progress and all that sort of stuff. And that's what John is saying. And the level of detail he's gone into there is fascinating. So it's it, it's a little bit like, you know, art reflecting life and yep. life reflecting art. Yep. And on which it, it's almost chicken and if, egg. If we would decide that economics is art, John. <laughs> which is you've elevated us onto no, but it's what people, deity status. But it's what people are talking about, or what, what people are writing about, and and all the rest. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. And, and and it's interesting. The other thing that I was thinking about when John was talking there was in the eighties there was a huge shift in thinking yep. in Ireland in particular, 
And, you know, you've written about this and talk about this a lot, about how the Irish economy exploded in, in, the, the, 90s. in, the, in the 90s as a result. But that kind of started in the 80s. And I was kind of thinking about, you know, it's not only the books, it was MTV, it was all, it was Starsky and Hutch from the 70s. It was the outside influence. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, all yeah. those cultural influences from, yeah. through media, music, the whole lot. Yeah, no, I think it's it's funny, you know, John was talking about the high point of innovation, futurism, progression being the moon landing. I've always thought, I wrote that book, The Pope's Children, years yeah. ago, but I, I've always thought that the Pope's visit to Ireland in 1979, the Catholic Church absolutely believed that this would be a propulsion point for Catholicism in Ireland thereafter. It would be actually a propulsion that the Catholics and the Catholic Church will become stronger. Yeah. And that was the whole celebration of the Pope arriving. This was their big thing. Look, you know, this is the big man with a million people in Phoenix Park. It turned out to be the high point, and it was the beginning of the end. Yeah. And if you look at the beginning of the end of Catholicism in Ireland, was when the Pope arrived. That's when it all yeah. started to fall apart, even though the clergy thought it was going to be the beginning of a new dawn of Catholicism. And you can see... And it was the Bishop Bain and Casey thing as well, you know, all when, that sort of when stuff. they discovered that he had an 18-year-old kid in Boston. And that, and that great piece of graffiti on the wall, which is, wear a condom, just in Casey. I know, it was really good. It was really, really good. But all those things. Yeah. So, so you, you see, so what John is saying is that England and Britain between about 1700 and about 1720, goes through mm. this convulsive period of science and, and all that sort of carry on. And this precedes the Industrial Revolution by about 50 years. So the change in the mood of the society sowed the seeds for the subsequent innovation. Yeah, And I actually think that the change in the mood of Ireland in the 80s against Catholicism, against dogma, moving towards liberalism, moving towards, as you said, embracing outside influences, mm sowed the seeds of the subsequent increase in the economy, which has been transformative and totally and utterly unpredicted. This is the key. Yeah. If yeah. you go back to what economists were saying in the 1980s, not one said this economy is going to take off. In fact, the narrative at the time was that we were sort of condemned to economic underachievement, right? Mm. That that was our lot, that Ireland was a kind of a bit of a basket case and we made a mess of everything, Right. And lo and behold, what happens in the 90s, 2000s, the thing takes off. And I believe it's because the mood of the nation changed. Nothing to do with Sean Lamas or TK Whitaker. Yeah. You hear all this stuff, you know, yeah. some big bloke wrote a paper in 1958 and the whole world changed. That's horseshit. That's not how but, but economics are, works. Yeah, but, it, but were those policies as a result of the change in thinking in the first place? No, I think that those policies were, to use that Danish expression, a smog is bored, John. Yeah. of kind of good things that you could come up with, right? It didn't take a genius to realise that Eamon de Valera was a lunatic when yeah. it comes to economics, yeah. right? Yeah. That the idea that Ireland could be self-sufficient yeah. and we could look in and around ourselves and we could dance at the crossroads and we could be homely maidens and all that stuff. I mean, that was the economics of madness, right? So it wasn't some great moment of clarity, Basically what happened is Lamasse and Quittiger wrote that paper in 1959 or 8. The economy didn't really start to move until about 1995. So if it was a good policy, it took a long time coming. I think much more likely is what John Byrne Murdoch says there, is that the mood and the attitude and what the society believed in began to change. And once you abandon dogma, religious dogma, economic dogma, you allow people 
to flourish and do their own thing. And that's what I believe happened here. Well, let me ask you one last question just before we finish. On Tuesday, we spoke of long-termism and short-termism and super cycles. Yeah. So how or are super cycles dictated by or influenced by culture and language Uh, and thinking? Absolutely. Culture. And and I come back to the, the, the point that I was given this book by John Collison of Stripe. Yeah. Called Where Is My Flying Car? Yeah. And he is a technologist, one of the best in the world. And his idea was like, what happened to progress? You know, how come we have a situation where we can't build enough houses when we know that actual fact in construction, the cost of construction, alternative construction has collapsed. We can do all sorts of stuff. And he's making the point that maybe it's to do with the attitude of the society towards progress has altered, which is exactly what John Byrne Murdoch is saying there. And super cycles are clearly affected by that. And the interesting thing about Ireland is I've always regarded what happened to Ireland. Is, remember, you know, in hotels, you had business centres, mm. right? That Ireland became the business centre of Europe. Imagine that, right? Yeah. So the coffee you, machine in the corner. coffee machine in the corner and it's sort of a laptop and la, la, la. You know, before mobile telephony, the business centre was a thing. Do you remember Mm. that? So people would go to a hotel and they'd explicitly go in there to do their business, right? And I think that's what's happened to Ireland. We've actually become the business centre of Europe, maybe even the business centre of the Western world, a small one, Mm. but one itself. And that has got to do with the mood of the people. That has got to do with the way people think about the world. And I think if we abandon that, that thinking, then the super cycles will come and hit us very, very hard. But if we maintain that thinking and that openness and that liberalism and that tolerance, then I think we could push this thing on for another decade or two, this growth rate, which is would be phenomenal. Anyway, I'll talk to you next week.